Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And again, small apology, you are, you're in France, which, thanks to President Macron, has one of the fastest bits of digital infrastructure in the world. And I am in a very remote part of rural Kenya, where I'm delighted to tell you I just saw an elephant walk past my window. But that doesn't necessarily oh, mean we're going to have great sound quality. Did it have the word Brexit on its backside? Because the <laughs> elephant in the room, as we know, is Brexit, which I never talk about. No, never talk about. And that brings us to our first question, where, in fact, following on from your elephant gag, there is a question coming in from... David Hardy, Harvey, written to me, Dear Mr. Stewart, my wife and I are avid readers of your excellent podcast. I'm delighted to see he's joined in my my proper proper <laughs> referral to what one does in a podcast. Please could you diplomatically ask your colleague, votre collègue, when he might be recovered from his disappointment over the 2016 Brexit referendum result? He mentions it in almost every edition. So here I am very diplomatically asking you about the elephant in the podcast. When will I get over the disappointment? Well, probably never, because I think it's one of those moments, I've said on the podcast many, many times, when the country of which I'm a part and a a proud citizen and which I love, uh, I do believe on that day, June the 23rd, 2016, chose its own decline. I think our politics has never recovered. I think one of the reasons that we've been talking so much about what's happening in our politics more broadly is what happened then and the fact that politics hasn't can't even bring itself to address the problems that it's that it's given rise to so if david harvey is trying to get me to stop banging on about brexit i fear he's not <laughs> going to be no, not going to be happy it's part, part of the price of the podcast isn't it I fear so. But I, I, let's, let's see if we can make that the last mention of Brexit today. Um, and also, for our, just so as listeners understand, we're going to try to get through this Q&A without really bothering about the Tory leadership because we'll be covering that off in the, in the, in the main podcast. But th- I guess this is slightly related, and it does mention the B word, but it's a question, so it's okay. Fee Posnett. What can I do to stop following politics 24-7? I've been doing it obsessively, TV, radio, Twitter, books, ever since Brexit, and now I'm exhausted, and I'm married to a man who just isn't interested. How do you not drive your families wild? Well, my family are actually, I'd say Fiona is in, the, I mean, I'd probably tell her to stop banging on about it more than she tells me to stop banging on about it, apart from possibly from Brexit. Well, I actually, I mean, I've had some very interesting conversations recently with my seven-year-old, who's very, very disturbed by Boris Johnson. Is this, is this the one who reads The Week? That's the one who reads The Week. He is, I, I mean, he seems to be a big Rishi Sunak supporter, as far as I can gather. And he's very disturbed oh. by Boris Johnson. He, he asked me this morning, um, why is it that everybody wants to vote for a comedian, was his question to me. But he's probably the person in the family most interested in politics. Happily, happily, happily you were able to tell him that most people actually don't want to vote for him. Uh, it's one of the great myths that Johnson's popular. Uh, and, and that he's funny. Well, he was funny at a point. when he's, he, I once saw him do an after-dinner speech, and I probably laughed about three times in 20 minutes, which is, you know, it's not as good as Tommy Cooper or Billy Connolly, but it's sort of, you know, it's better than most politicians. Or, or Max Miller, the cheeky chappy. 
Oh, your friend, the cheeky chappy, yeah. But you should, um, I, th- I do think it's one of the, in fact, there's a great, here we are. James Thomas, how big an issue is confirmation bias with politician, e.g. Johnson supporters saying he is a winner, ignoring recent events, for example, by-elections, opinion polls, etc. I mean, one of the, the things that Johnson managed to do with all his client journalists' friends is portray himself as a version of something that he stopped being a long time ago in the eyes of the public. So I don't doubt there are some people who think he's absolutely marvellous and they don't mind the fact that he's a liar and a lawbreaker. I really do think if Johnson had summoned up the bottle to go for the whole thing and he'd won, I think actually that would have been really, really good for Labour. I think it would be the end of the Conservative Party. So this idea of confirmation bias, and for the, for those, uh, as we say, readers of the podcast who um, who aren't up on all this stuff, Confirmation bias, the tendency to process information by looking for or interpreting information that is consistent with one's existing beliefs. Happy to, happy to know that Google is working in Kenya, Rory. Happy very to know. Good, thank you. So very much the heart of the Vietnam War, very much the heart of, I'm afraid, what happened in Iraq in the early days, which is when you are down a path, and I think governments really do this, you dig in and you listen to all the information that suits you, and you discount inconvenient information. And I I saw this in everything. I saw this in British responses to flooding. I saw it in the way that we dealt with COVID in the early days. I saw it in the way that we dealt with Ebola. It is. I saw it the way we dealt with prisons. It's extraordinary, the psychological tendency. That and groupthink, I think, are the two biggest defining features of any government. Mm. I think also what's interesting about that is that polarization that we've talked about a lot has made it worse because we're so locked into our own tribal thinking of what we think is right. And I listen, this book I'm writing at the moment, I'm trying to challenge myself on it in relation to the B word in that I, I so hate what Brexit has done to the country. I do consciously try to say, like, let me try and see this from the point of view of a Brexiteer. Can I see anything that is positive? And I do find it very, very hard. And I sometimes think, well, is that because I'm just constantly overlooking for the things that I know will support my view? I think we do all do it. We do, we do all do it. I mean, I had, I had an interesting one of this because obviously, like you, I voted Remain, but I represented a constituency that was majority Brexit. And I had a lot of very good friends, including actually a, a, you know, a close personal friend in Cumbria who voted Brexit. And I would spend many, many evenings and dinners with him in Cumbria talking this through. And I had a very strong sense by the end of it of why he wanted Brexit. It wasn't in his case economic at all. And I think that's sincere. I think many of the Brexiteers who say we didn't do it for economic reasons and therefore the economic arguments don't matter to them is right. I mean, certainly in his case, it's this idea of sovereignty. It's the idea of being able to make your own mistakes. It's, um, I remember my father was a British colonial officer in uh, Malaya after the Second World War, part of the British Empire. And I remember him relating a conversation that he had with people in the mid fifties where he said, but there are going to be negative economic consequences of leaving the British Empire was the argument that Brits were trying to make to people. And the answer, of course, then was maybe there will be, but we would rather make our own decisions. And that's more important mm. to us than the question of whether or not we're wealthy. We're not doing a very good job for your first question, Mr. David Harvey, at getting your Brexit, are we? So we'll try We'll We'll really try now. Let's try and leave the B word behind us. Now, we had a few questions about what's going on at the National Trust. Natasha Jackson Can you talk about National Trust and what they're fighting? Another question, are you a member of the National Trust? If you are, please vote by this Friday to protect this organization from infiltration by a right-wing group calling themselves Restore Trust. So I dug into this a bit. 
And I discovered that Restore Trust was founded by somebody called Neil Record. And do you know what Neil Record does in his other life, Rory? He's the chairman of the Institute for Economic Affairs. And do you know where they're based? They're based in 55 Tufton Street. And he's also a board member of the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which is another organization based at 55 Tufton Street, which is the UK's leading climate denial campaign. This Restore Trust started in 2020. And who was one of the first people to take up its cause in the right-wing media? Lord Charles Moore, record and more board member and trustee respectively of the Global Warming Policy Foundation, the UK's principal climate denial campaign. Um, now they pose, Restore Trust poses interested amateurs. They call themselves a grassroots outfit supported by thousands of National Trust members. But we don't know who funds them, but we have a fair bet that it'll be dark money if it's anything to do with 55 Tufton Street. They have lots of online supporters with anonymized accounts such as Save Our Statues, and they spend an awful lot of money on promoted social media. And they claim it's about that what they're trying to do is to get their candidates onto the National Trust's ruling council. The trust is elected by members. They choose the trustees and the chairman. They... The, the, this Restore Trust group would appear to have on its board Tory and UKIP donors. Nothing wrong with that, but I think we should know. And they are very, very, as you might expect for 55 Tufton Street, they're very good at spreading disinformation. They get a lot of coverage in the Telegraph. They get a lot of coverage in the Critic. And they get a lot of coverage on a platform like the very right wing. I don't know if you've heard of the New Culture Forum, Rory. And the New Culture Forum, which also comes from 55 Tufton Street. So, and then if you dig deeper, Rory, as I've been doing, if you dug a little bit deeper, it seems that what their big interest is, is land, land use policy, data and soft power, because the National Trust owns 1.3% of all land in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. So I am 100 million percent with those who are trying to see off what is in fact a right wing infiltration of the worst possible kind. Let me come back then. So I'm, I'm quite sympathetic towards Restore Trust, despite everything that you've said. And I have talked to many members of them. I'm very interested in National Trust. I'm a member of the National Trust. Do you accept what I've said is true, though? Do you accept what I've said is true? Yeah, it's true that they are many of the people who sympathize with them, many of the people who support them, many of the people who give them money tend to be more from the right and the left. And that's because they have a much more traditional vision of the National Trust. It's basically a fight between a much more traditional vision of the National Trust and a, I guess, a more modernizing vision of the National Trust. And one of the big things at the heart of it is buildings. So the National Trust, as you say, owns an enormous amount of the land mass of, of, of the island. And of course, the Scottish National Trust is independent, but a large amount of the landmass of England and Wales. And uh, they also own an enormous amount of historic buildings. So after the, um, well, really after the First World War, but most sort of dramatically through the Second World War and onwards, they took over all these very, very big country houses. And initially, most of their focus, um, or a lot of their focus in the 30s and 40s, were on preserving these houses, presenting these houses. And that has become more controversial because the trust is divided between many volunteers who love these traditional country houses, love telling stories around them, and other members who are frankly quite embarrassed about the country houses and want to focus a lot on telling stories about feudalism, about slavery, about exploitation. So really, this fight started about the way in which these houses are presented to the public. 
And uh, it started, for example, for the fact that uh, in one particular country house, there was a very big push to reinterpret the owner of the house and emphasize his sexuality. Uh, there's been a lot of emphasis in, in other country houses on presenting the problems of empire. So if you go, for example, to Powys Castle, which was Clive of India's home or the fa his family's home, you will see very, very strong attacks on Clive of India, driven obviously by views on British imperial history. Which are, which are, not, which are not unreasonable. I've been listening to Empire and, uh, and I learned an awful lot about why, frankly, I learned a lot about why we probably should be having a much harsher assessment of the role of Clive of India. And I, I mean, what you were saying to me, Rory, is that this is just all fitting into this kind of alt-right, anti-woke campaigning, picking organizations which are, you know, trying to give a broad and balanced view of our history. What is wrong with that? So, so, so if that's what was happening, I would be more sympathetic with you. But actually, I have some sympathy for Restore Trust. I think there have been definitely examples in the National Trust of these buildings being presented in a very simplistic, dumbed-down way. So if you go to Powers Castle, it doesn't really attempt to frame Clive of India. It puts up a couple of slogans. It doesn't really attempt to create the context of his career. It's not actually presenting in an intelligent and thoughtful way why Clive was taken seriously, why the building was interesting. In fact, it often gives the impression, often gives the impression that the uh, buildings are a bit boring or that they're a bit embarrassing. Mm. So I guess... I think we don't need to be dragged into this left or right. I love the National Trust. I think they do incredible good. But I also think that we're quite lucky to have a new chair of the National Trust who's begun to respond and recognize that some of the things Restore Trust was complaining about were going on and has begun to hit more of a middle ground on this. Well, I, w I would simply say that I think anything that has some of the characters that I was reading about there and anything that has 55 Tufton Street driving the whole thing in their usual opaque, non-transparent way, I am utterly with those who are trying to see them off. And if you want to be uh, on that side of the argument, as opposed to the Rory side of the argument, go to nationaltrust.org.uk, scroll down to AGM and follow the instructions and get the good people, not the bad people inside. Now, Dom, our producer, is saying, you're going on too long about the National Trust. Please, could you move on? So, Rory, talking about Empire and the excellent podcast, Fiona, my missus, is driving, been driving down through France, listening back to back to Empire. And she sent me a message last night saying, can you ask Rory whether he thinks the Kohenor diamond, which Camilla might have in her crown when she's crowned, should be given back to the Indians? I think not, because the answer is almost everybody claims it. So it, it was in India, it enters history in India, and then it was taken to Iran. So the Iranians claim it, what was then Persia. Then it was taken to Afghanistan, so the Afghans have a claim on the Kohinoor. Then it was grabbed by the Sikh rulers of the Punjab, based in Lahore, which is now Pakistan. And the last Sikh ruler of the Punjab gave it to Queen Victoria. So I think the Indians putting in a claim for it is going to find themselves in a lot of trouble for a lot of other countries also claiming it. Good. Good answer. I shall feed that back. Claire Debenham. How many people would need to take to the streets to force a general election? What do you think, Rory? It, it's very difficult to know, isn't it? I mean, how many people did you have demonstrating against the Iraq war and what impact did that have on you? Over a million. Over a million. And, and, and it didn't change your mind, did it? Uh, it changed. It certainly changed the debate. Um, it didn't change Tony Blair's mind, no. But I think this is... I mean, well, look, as you know, as you know, I'm in, I'm in Paris and I was on the, uh, yesterday talking to somebody on the train who's French 
and who was saying that, you know, who lives in Britain, who say that if this, if what was happening in Britain right now was happening in France, the streets would be full. It does seem to take an awful lot to get British people so agitated that they take to the streets in in large numbers. Although somebody did point out, Rory, Helen Rushby, there were 50,000 plus at the Rejoin March on Saturday, but it was not reported on the news. Those who didn't vote leave have been ignored for six years now. 70% now think Brexit. Oh, sorry, I've gone to back to Brexit. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> let's go back to general relations. Okay, here's a question from John Engel, though. Interested to hear your thoughts on Lord King's comments that there isn't enough money to increase taxes on the rich and that no surprise middle income earners should reshoulder the load. Focus on tax havens, corporation tax, recalculating council tax, which I presume is a reference to imposing a property tax, etc. Mm. One, one question for you, Alistair, given that you're, given that you're somebody from the left, and I, I want you to honestly answer this question and not uh, cheekily cut this part of the podcast because you don't know the answer to it. Um, what is your uh, right, best sorry, guess? Sorry, 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 sorry. I'm cutting in here, Rory. I'm cutting in here. I have never asked for anything that's been recorded to be taken out. I think I could point to two occasions where you have. Okay, go on. Carry here on. That was because I was unbelievably rude about a parliamentary colleague of mine, not because I didn't know the answer to a question. Okay, here we are. What would be your guess of which percentage of income tax receipts comes from the top 10% of income taxpayers? What's your best guess? Oh, Lord. Uh, well, it's not as high as people might think. I don't know. What's your best guess? Top 10% I don't know. best guess. What the top percent pay in tax? I'm going 22. 60, 60%. No, 60. No, I should have known that. 60% of income tax receipts come from the top 10%. What's your guess of what percentage of income tax receipts comes from the top 1%? Hmm. Of all income tax come from the top 1%. Well, hold on a minute. You say within the top 1%, you're talking about the top 1% who pay tax. So of the top 1% who pay tax, yeah, how much of the total tax take comes from the top 1%? I'm going 27.9%. Good. The top 1%, that's almost right, pay 30% of all income tax revenues. In other words, three in every £10 the government receives in income tax is paid by just over 300,000 individuals. Mm. So that I think is interesting. But anyway, back to you. Back to you on the, the question on why is it Lord King saying that the rich are paying a lot of tax and what else should we be doing? I saw Lord King's, parts of Lord King's interview. And honestly, I really didn't want to revisit the B word. But for him to sit there and opine in the way he did as a sort of independent-minded commentator about what should be happening now and blather on about Ukraine, etc., without even being challenged on the fact that he was a big Brexit backer and the damage that has done to the economy. And I think his successor, somebody for whom I have far more respect, Mark Carney, who said last week that you can't put it all down to Brexit, but the fact is, in 2016, our economy was roughly the size, 90% the size of Germany's, and now it's 70% the size of Germany's. So I don't, I've got to be honest, I'm not a big fan of Mervyn King. Uh, and I, I, I just, I just think that we're back to the elephant in the room on this. So I'm not really going to. I don't think we should spend too much time worrying about his, um, his views. about his view. Um, let's just go to a quick break. Okay. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. 
Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Right, uh, some lots of questions on education this week. Mrs. Hall, H-O-L-L. Nine out of ten schools, according to The Observer, will run out of money next year. Please, can you discuss this? What should be done to help schools during the crisis? No one else seems to be covering it. What with the circus going on? I assume that means the Tory leadership. Uh, Intel Scout, maybe you guys could talk about the state of the British education system, what could, has to be done to improve it. I heard on LBC that education spending has dropped below 2010 levels. And I think I'm right, Rory, that Rishi Sunak had said previously that his big ambition for education was to get the spending up to the levels that it was at pre-austerity. So we're back to your friend austerity. I, I really do think people are underestimating in all this talk about the energy crisis and the cost of living crisis, that the big, one of the big victims is going to be our public services and their energy bills. Uh, and for schools, it's going to be an absolute catastrophe. Yeah, it's not just the energy bills. I mean, it's cost of living in general. It's that the, the costs of paying for almost everything, energy, food, it's what's going to happen to staff costs. It's what's going to happen all the way along. No, I think we're going to be in real trouble. I, uh, quite understandably, the public is completely exhausted by austerity, by the state of the public services. As I think I said that I'd seen a figure suggesting 70% of the public is in favor of increases to public spending, even if it involves increasing taxes. But at the same time, the country is in real trouble and we're being punished very hard by the financial markets for borrowing more. So, and I guess... Rishi Sunak during the leadership crisis, uh, during the sorry, the crisis, <laughs> during the leadership race. I think crisis is okay. Crisis is okay. Put a lot more money into education. Um, but at some point, there is going to be something absolutely insane that we haven't begun to think about, which is it's not just the schools running out of money. The hospitals are in crisis, and that's partly because, partly for Brexit reasons, they're running out of doctors and nurses, but it's also that the costs of healthcare go up every year, demand goes up every year, medical costs go up every year. And I'm just not sure 
what's going to happen because we've already, as people keep complaining, got the highest tax rates that we've had for 70 years. I don't quite get how any of this gets paid mm. for. Yeah. Uh, a little bit lighter. WM Chris, love the podcast. I'm intrigued by the intro and outro music. Outro music. What is it? Uh, and it's called People, A Diabolical Caper by Luke Richards. Sam Richards, Alistair and Rory. This is a very personal question, Rory, this one. Alistair and Rory, what are your biggest insecurities? God, I've got a lot of insecurities. Um, Have you? I was thinking about it because I'm in Africa and I'm, I'm, I've been looking at a lot of animals recently and somebody asked me what my spirit animal was. I mean, obviously, I, my seven-year-old very sweetly said a lion, but obviously I looked at the lion. I realized I wasn't a lion. I've decided I'm, I'm a warthog. And I think that suggests quite a lot of insecurities on my part. But what are the insecurities, Rory? You haven't said what well, the insecurities I think, what's, are. What's a warthog? I think a warthog's <laughs> not not very good looking. Uh, he's he's <laughs> he's generally uh, written off in the Lion King for for <laughs> farting in a smelly way. He's quite prancy, runs around with his tail in the air. Uh, got a couple of horns. Looks quite tough, but he's basically just a pretty tiny, <laughs> tiny animal. So I think there's a lot of insecurities there. What are your insecurities? Um, what are my insecurities? I I have an absolute terror. And I mean terror of Fiona predeceasing me because I just don't think I could cope either with the practicalities. I think it's obviously the emotional side, but actually it's, I've always had a big insecurity about being utterly impractical. Um, as you know, from the way we record the podcast that I literally cannot do stuff like that properly. Um, so that's a big one. I also have. Uh, I do have financial insecurities. I've, I have a terror of being in debt. And obviously I have insecurities around, you know, my mental health. I mean, when my mental health is good, I always have at the back of my mind a little worry that quite soon it might not be. And that's sort of, that's an insecurity as well. And I, and I get very, very, um, I do go through phases where I kind of catastrophize about literally everything. So yeah, that was a very good question from Sam. I like I, I like that one. I had a thought on financial insecurity. Just just quickly, I think it's important to understand this also with MPs because MPs are paid much more than most people in the public, but of course many of them are paid much less than they feel they earned in the jobs they did before they came into Parliament. Many people take a pay cut to come into Parliament, and they are paid, I guess. Uh, less than a GP, less than head teachers in many schools. And I wonder whether financial insecurity isn't one of the things that defines a lot of the bad behavior. I was thinking back, I said no to a speaking invitation when I was, uh, I think, been an MP for a year or two to go and address the Tobacco Federation in Geneva. And they were going to pay me, I think, £15,000 to give a speech. And I said no. But instead of feeling sort of proud of myself, I actually remember sort of brooding about it for, for weeks and months afterwards. I mean, even recently, I was like, oh, God, I said no to £15,000, etc. And I think it's it, when we look at these lobbying scandals, when we look at these corruption scandals, when we look at all the horrible stuff, whether it's, you know, taking money from oligarchs or Bernie Eccleston or any of this kind of stuff, I wonder whether financial insecurity amongst members of parliament isn't an explanation of, of some of the problems we're seeing. Interesting. I th I, I, look, Rory, I really wouldn't lose sleep about the Geneva thing. That's a pretty clear one on the moral compass, I'd say. <laughs> and never lose, never, never lose sight of the moral compass. By the way, while we've been talking, I just popped up on my phone that Keir Starmer's done an interview saying that if England progress in the World Cup in Qatar, 
uh, he and other members of the front bench will not go because of Qatar's oh. record on human rights. It's quite a big statement, isn't it? That is a big statement, very big statement. And and interesting mm. to see how that plays yeah. out, because remember, Biden took a very, very strong line on Saudi Arabia. And since he's become, and obviously at the moment, this podcast tends to be quite in favor of Keir Starmer becoming prime minister. Biden found when he became president that his very strong statements about Saudi Arabia left him in a pretty difficult position when he had to go and ask them mm. to increase their oil production. And mm. I think we may be in a world where we can't rely totally on there being enough democracies out there to back us in every corner. We may be able to have to deal with monarchies and countries we disapprove of. No, and also, we, we've, we're recording this on the same day that we recorded the interview with, with uh, former French President Hollande, who was you know, talking about the fact that the more autocratic countries, uh, we are becoming increasingly dependent on them. And I think, you know, we shouldn't necessarily always define our relations through, through a single prism, which, um, but anyway, I thought that was, I thought that was, that was quite interesting. Really interesting. And I think it suggests um, that Labour wants to put human rights at the centre of this. And of course, you, you did it, didn't you, with Robin Cook and his ethical foreign policy. Ethical foreign policy, yeah, absolutely. But the problem with foreign policy is that that felt in 97, it was happening at a time when the number of democracies in the world was growing very, very fast, when America mm. was this immense superpower. And I think we're now moving into a world, a brutal world, with Ukraine and, and Russia, with China, where we're going to have to find allies in places which feel uncomfortable to us if we're going to win what's likely to be a prolonged global conflict. Mm. Charlie, what would it take for Rory to rejoin the Tory party? And what would it take for Rory slash Alistair to rejoin the Labour party? So there's obviously, Charlie's obviously thinking, Rory, that you might be so disaffected with the Tories that you'll come the whole way. I'm doubting that one. Um, so shall I go first? I I, I feel you go first. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to rejoin the Labour Party, but I'm probably I've got, I, I do enjoy the fact that even though you think I'm far too fond of the Labour Party and, and not strong enough on them on this podcast, I actually do feel I have a greater freedom not being a member to say what I genuinely think, and I I think it's also I guess also I do still feel a little bit angry that I was thrown out. Pretty unceremoniously. I think I learned about it on Twitter. I can't remember now. Um, but I certainly learned about it before I got, um, got a letter. Um, and I was thrown out because I voted Lib Dem in the European elections in protest at Labour's then Brexit policy, which moved closer to my position ultimately. So I guess I'm proud enough to say, look, until it's absolutely 100% clear that if I did apply, not only would there be no obstacle to that, but actually that would be very, very welcome, then blah de blah So what about you, Rory? What do we have to do to get you right well, over? So it's a remarkable parallel. And maybe this is just the way the parties do it. I was thrown out by text message. I was actually in the turbine hall of the Tate Gallery, collecting a prize as politician of the year in front of all these celebrities. And as I went water... I was the there, Rory. I was there. You were wearing a kilt. I was, that's right. I was in my tartan. Getting this apologetic text from the chief whip sending, telling me I'd been fired because I'd voted to try to stop a no-deal Brexit in Parliament. And I remember my uh, one of the local councillors, the chair of my local Conservative Association, very kindly resigned in my favour. And a couple of the other officers of the association resigned in my favour. But of course, they were then immediately replaced by people who moved very quickly to prevent me from being able to stand again as an MP. I remember one of them saying to me, at the Remembrance Day service, which I was reading a lesson at just before the election, that 
they hoped I understood it, it wasn't anything personal. And I said to them, having spent nearly 10 years campaigning for them up and down in every street of Cumbria, that, that it felt pretty personal to me. Um, mm. so, so would you, would you, would you ever think, do you think you will ever rejoin the Conservatives? I don't know. I mean, we, we, I would recommend people listen to this interview we did with President Hollande. I mean, it's really interesting. There's a, there's a struggle with the fact that he speaks good English, but I'm afraid it's about the standard of my French. But I think one of the things he says in it, which is really challenging to you and I, is to say you should not write off the importance of the parties that actually he feels that France suffers from not having political parties like Labour and the Conservatives, that they play mm. a moderating role and that going to a system where everybody does their own thing uh, is very dangerous. He had this lovely phrase, didn't he? He, he said, um, you don't want to be, what was it, en providential, was it was a sort of um, a man of destiny. He believes in organisation and believes in parties, is sceptical about the idea of the kind of individual hero politician. And I think there's a sort of wisdom in that. In fact, some ways, one of the things that I... Um, angriest with Boris Johnson and the ERG and the extreme Brexiteers about is destroying the Conservative Party as it used to be, which was a broad coalition that stretched from left to right and somehow contained within itself the ability to manage this kind of discord and try to provide a kind of moderating force. So I'll, I'll try again. <laughs> Does that mean you will never rejoin the Conservatives or you might? I, I, if I had a, a one-nation leader who I was really proud of. You know, there are people still in Parliament who I really admire. There's a woman called Gillian Keegan I really admire. I have a friend called Alex Chalk who I like very much. I mean, there are there are people there who I think I could be proud of and get behind, but at the moment I'd find it very difficult. Mm. Um, Julian Mitchell, did I hear correctly? Steve Baker on Sky News threatening that the Eurosceptics will bring down any Prime Minister that does not bend the Northern Ireland Protocol. How emboldened are the ERG? And who are they really threatening? Well, this, I think, just follows on very neatly from the last question and all this talk about coalition. So the, a lot of things we complain about, which is the domination of the two-party system and the domination of the whips, had an advantage, which is it allowed governments to deliver budgets, allowed governments to hold their majorities. If they had a big majority, they could rule. And what's now happened is that the Conservative Party isn't a party anymore split into a lot of factions. In fact, we had, a, we had a good question from somebody who's trying to challenge me. I'm not going to obviously answer this, but Joel Glilford says, question for Rory, you said quite a few times last week that the Conservative Party was not really one party, but a coalition of 12 distinct factions. Could you define or characterize these for us? Obviously, nobody's going to want to listen to me define the 12 factions in the Conservative Party. But one of those factions is obviously the ERG, and that threat is very, very dangerous. What's essentially happening there is yet again a relatively small group of people. And during the Brexit votes, when they were trying to destroy Theresa May's softer Brexit deal, they were down to about 27 or 30 people were able to hold the entire party, the government and the country hostage. And Steve Baker is directly responsible for triggering the leadership challenge against Theresa May. He also moved to bring down Boris Johnson. He also, I think, I don't know whether he was, but there were certainly people in the ERG who moved against uh, Liz Truss. So they are an extraordinary force. And one of the reasons that Suella Braverman, who really was a pretty much an unknown figure a few weeks ago, you know, she was Boris Johnson's attorney general, but not somebody that anybody thought was heading for high office, is now likely to get a senior cabinet position because she's believed to have the support of the ERG. 
And when she mm. resigned from Liz Truss's cabinet, uh, that was actually one of the things I think that really triggered Liz Truss's departure. So it's odd how little groups of 30 people in modern politics can hold the whole thing to hostage. Mm. Right, Rory, we're going to wrap up now. Um, last question. Martin Edwards, you've got 10 quid each to spend on a festive present for each other. What will you buy? Now, I've got mine. I've worked mine out. Oh, blimey. Okay. Gosh, that's a really good question. Shall I tell you? Go on then. Shall I tell you what I'd buy you? Yeah. yeah. Well, my Albanian barber, Alex Pelushi, never charges more than a tenner for a haircut. Yeah. Yeah. And Rory, both President Hollande and I commented today that you look like a sort of brown-haired version of Boris Johnson. This is not a good look. You need a haircut, and I will happily give you a tenner. You can, when you get back to England, you can go and see Alex. He'll give you a nice, nice, tidy cut. That's terrific. I saw a guy actually who was advertising this. He, it's called. I, I, I used to go to this barber. He was called. It was called a West End Cuts for East End Prices. Um, now, here's what I'm going to buy you. I'm going to buy you a pair of Merino cycling socks for £8.95. Nice. Thank you. Thank right. you. I can wear those with the new new European cycling top, which just arrived in the post yesterday, thereby plugging a newspaper and a sponsor of the podcast. Very good. Lovely right. to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 